welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. Problems that we have in, in the country are solvable, and they're probably not solvable the way we're approaching them right now through partisan politics. Um, I've spent a good deal of time in healthcare. I am familiar with the legislation. I'm familiar with past practice. And there's some things that we need to do as a country that po folks don't want to touch. And central to this is the notion of employer-provided health insurance. Um, it really doesn't make sense in today's economy at all. Um, in fact, it is a, uh, a artifact of a 1945 rule when there were wage and price controls and you couldn't give people salary increases, but you could provide them benefits on a tax-free basis. That's interesting, Rich. And I wanted to ask you straight out because you're one of the first guys I've ever known that actually has their arms around the... Uh the origins of this, because people think that, uh, well, it's a right, must have been wrong for a long time, and you can snap a chalk line on when this starts. There's a reason that it starts, and people start thinking, well, the government is going to have some sort of play in my own personal health care, and you've, you've mentioned 1945. It's a post-war thing, is that correct? It, it is, or and the tax treatment, let's start there. Um, it's inherently unfair. How so? You have two people living next to each other. Chris has a very well-funded health plan. It's worth $30,000 a year, a lot of first-dollar coverage, extensive benefits, great provider network, pays zero taxes. Next door to Chris is Pat. Pat has a very meager plan. It has very high deductibles. It doesn't have as extensive of a network. Uh, there are longer wait times. It's worth on the market about $8,000. Pat pays zero income tax on that. So let's start there. Now, one of the arguments you're going to hear, in fact, you've heard frequently, um, and you'll hear it during this 2020 debates ad nauseum, is that people like their employer-provided health care. And you'll hear the uh, big health plan saying it's a very efficient market that takes care of 180 million Americans. What they leave out is that if a person becomes too ill to work, then they're no longer in the pool. And the cruelty of at the point you most need your health insurance, you lose it, is patently cruel. It's absurd. It's not justifiable. What if you're fortunate enough to get through your work life become aged, where you are going to consume more health care services, then what happens? You're out of that pool as well. So it, it doesn't make sense. The it's other, kind of steeped in irony, isn't it? I mean, it, right, right when it comes to play, you're out of it. it. It does. It does. It makes no sense. Look, when my grandfather, who came to Detroit in the Depression, uh, started in the mailroom at Chrysler Corporation, and uh, some 40 years later retired as a um, executive rank in the financial services part of Chrysler, getting his insurance from Chrysler kind of made sense 
And now when you think about the gig economy and workers taking on assignments for a period of weeks or a period of months, and you have the employment rules saying what constitutes an employee, and all these big employers are trying to find ways to avoid calling someone an employee so they don't have to provide health insurance. It, it, it makes no sense. And so you think the health insurance is the main component of not wanting to be an FTE? Is, is that the, the, the biggest lift? For it a, is a, a pension and health care. But pension seems to be moving on to 401k anyway, but health care is, is the last standing beast there, right? It, precisely. So, so think about this. Um, I've had the honor of being married for a very long time. And during that entire time of our marriage, decades, we have had one company that insures our cars. And here's the way they look at it. They take in premium from us. They have time to invest those premiums so that when we make claims, they can pay the premiums. We had four kids. All four of our kids hit something. Thankfully, nothing major. But they serviced those claims because they knew on the other side of that claim, there was another premium stream if they could take care of me as a customer. And so they've enjoyed a 40-year relationship, and we've enjoyed a 40-year relationship. They win the gamble, though. Well, in this case, and they've got a big enough risk pool to, to, to uh, work that out, but, but it's structured correctly. Now let's look at health care. And the last stats I saw, and I think they've gotten worse since then, is that the average American has their health plan about 21 months. And the reason is people change jobs. The employer shops the plan. The plan gets canceled. And so now if you're the insurer on the other side, you're taking in premium. You don't really have time to invest it to pay claims because you're not going to have that relationship. When a claim comes in, there's not an incentive to service that claim because there's not a premium stream on the other side. And this happened to me personally, by the way. Um, and so their machinery is set up to say, we're not going to pay the claim. And they've got a lot of machinery to deny that claim. And isn't that uh, sort of protocol now is that something comes in, initially reject it, and then you, you, you need to prove to me why. So, so there's a, a lot of no's before a yes, right? Exactly. And, and, that, and it's structured that way. And you can see the economic incentive. But we need to liberate health insurance, which is a longitudinal need, from employment, which is not a longitudinal need. When it, when it comes to, to health insurance, it doesn't make any sense to get it from the employer. And as an employer, it's a, a nightmare. It's a headache. And it's something you really can't meet everyone's needs. Now, if you want to look at this from an ideological standpoint, on one side, there is, hey, you know what? The government provides everything, and it's illegal for anyone else to provide uh, like services or like insurances. On the other side, it's government doesn't provide anything and let the free market do it. Now, I don't think either of those is the approach, but if you had to pick one or the other, you might want to have with the appropriate rules about shall issue and pre-existing condition, sell it the way you sell car insurance. All right, long-term relationships, take good care of me, service my claims, you're going to continue to keep my business, 
going to continue to keep my premiums. The, I think the right way to do this, though, is to face the fact that we've tried to put a patch on a patch on a patch on a patch on a patch. And there comes a time when you have to just look at this structurally. So what I would propose is just a few things would solve the whole problem. First thing, for all of the wonderful tax-supported health care that we have, Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, TRICARE, even the VA, consolidate all those bureaucracies and all that spend into one universal system. Everybody gets that. If you're a citizen of the United States, you get it. And that would be managed centrally, uh, a, a government uh, uh, regulated solution. A, a government solution. Provided, provided health insurance. Everybody gets that plan. It's paid for. Everybody pays something. And perhaps someone at the bottom of the income scale pays $50 a year. And maybe someone at the top pays $25,000 a year. You put it right onto the 1040 and you that's how you raise the money for it. And you consolidate all those bureaucracies, all of, by the way, whom will defend themselves and get it down to one single spend. That's one layer. Now, everybody's got something. Next, you allow a private insurance market with the appropriate controls about shall issue and not denying on pre-existing conditions or on uh, genetic for people that want to buy faster access, that want to buy more choice, that want to buy more innovation. Isn't that that component sort of exists today? Yes. I mean, you could walk out and go, look, I've got a big bag of money and I'm going to go somewhere and go, look, I'm going to pay for really good health insurance. Well, Is that th- not true there's lots not? of ways to do that. And if you look at every centralized system around the world, there is a secondary market. And everybody that has the resources buys something on the secondary market. And they do that to avoid wait times. They do that so that they can get more advanced care. Of course. And they, that will always happen, right? It, it is. And, and people like to point to Canada. And frankly, Canada's system works well because they have the United States next door as their secondary insurance. And all of my, I had many, uh, thousands of hospital clients, and all of them on the border and in the Sun Belt were all set up to take in Canadian patients who had insurance if they didn't want to wait the months for their knee surgery or their hip surgery or their heart surgery, they came to the United States. And let the market innovate. I mean, if somebody points to a, a podcast or a device that the central government invented, to let us have conversations like this, then great. But look where the innovations come from. They come from the private sector uh, solving something, yet distribution's not great, all right? And you can't, and I'm, I'm of the belief that um, we have all the resources in the country to provide some level of care. And that's where that, that first leg comes from. The uh, third thing I would do, if, uh, if, I, if it was possible, tomorrow... I'd make everybody eligible for Medicare Part D. Medicare Part D covers drugs. Uh, It's a fair fight. It pits the insurance companies against the pharmaceutical companies. Okay, so there's no copay with D. There's just oh, there's copay. There's but you pick. You pick. um, uh, The Medicare Part D is a been a stunning success. Um, Ninety-five percent 
subscriber satisfaction still. Uh, it is running 40% below the cost projections. And how did they get there? They made it insurance. If a person or when a person becomes eligible for Medicare, you don't have to sign up for Part D. But if you wait until you now have drug needs, the catch-up premium is really steep. So it attracts in the 80% of the people that are only going to use 20% of the services and provides enough funding for the 20% that are going to use 80% of the spend. And by the way, this isn't an idea that was invented in the good old USA. The Australian national system uses something very, very similar, and it works really well. How long do you think that's been going on in Australia? I'm not familiar with it. I uh, don't know how okay. long Australia's had that, but... I just uh, wonder if it worked out the kinks yet. I mean, if, if Oh, well, they're all aware. We start paying in when you're 19. Really? Yeah. And you don't have to, but if you wait till you're 28, it's a lot of money to get in. <laughs> all right, right. So it's, it's true insurance. Um, and then the fourth leg that I'd put on this would, would be a very simple, tax the benefits. All right. If you're, remember the origins, the origins was, I can't give you wages, so I'm going to give you this health insurance. It has monetary value. I guarantee you give somebody a, on their W-2, they made $45,000 a year in wages, and they made $25,000 a year in health insurance benefits. Now they're going to start paying attention to utilization. They're going to start paying attention to what's in that plan. They're going to work to bring the cost down. And you could phase that in over five years. And before you ask, I'll tell you, if there's only of those four things that I outlined, what would be the key, the catalyst to actually get us on the right course? The key would be to start taxing the benefits. You could do that phase it in 20% a year over the next five years. Because you think that gets that gets somebody's attention. It it starts to put the economics down into the very powerful free enterprise engine that we have, and it lets consumers make choices, and it creates the moral hazard of consumption uh, uh, prior to um, utilizing services. Now, I want to make sure before I leave that topic, though, that there's two sides of the coin about utilization. So the tools of co-payments and deductibles were used to prevent, somewhat prevent the you know, capricious use of health services. And it does work. And, and healthcare utilization does come down. But they've also found that it comes down inappropriately. People don't get the needed care because they don't want to have to pay the deductible or don't want to have to pay the copay. I see. And so that that is a a, a real hazard. Yeah. Be but becomes a block, yeah. But if again if if you start taxing somebody for that $25,000 plan, you're not saying you can't have it. You're just saying it's compensation. You're going to pay taxes on that. We'd really get this looked at. Cool. All right, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, and I know you, you've been uh, you have a long history of supporting incentive based uh, based uh, uh, education uh, mentor programs. I'm going to veer off of that even a little bit too. I just want to take a look at uh, just general landscape of of today's public education. Um, I think it was John Adams early on, uh, and the founding fathers made education uh, a priority and said, you know, we do need to educate our young, and I, and I paraphrase greatly. Uh, we're, we're at a, a stage now where it seems to be failing at a lot of levels. Uh, can you speak a little bit to maybe um, 
how that's changed and maybe not a four-step program, but if you get to wave the magic wand, I know you think about this stuff a lot. Um, well, where, where would you go if it was like, we're all gonna listen to Richard Helpy here for a little while and, and, and here's, here's his ideas on the direction of helping education today? Well, I think many people would agree that one of the wisest and most accomplished Americans was Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln, was said to do his homework with a piece of coal on a shovel on the hearth by firelight. So let's not do that. Let, let's, move, <laughs> let, let's move to the future. All right. And I, I first want to step back and talk about how absolutely vital education is. And the future of our country relies on it and an educated populace and, and an educated populace so let's take a fictional character a childless miser with a heart of stone we'll call him rich i let's let's think of another name <laughs> i think i think uh dickens might have said ebenezer or something <laughs> yeah. but anyway this this name well this done. this well played this 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 uh this this fictional person is uh, working a, uh, let's say they, they're making a medium wage and they've been frugal and they've saved their money and their plan is to retire and rely on Social Security and Medicare to supplement their pension. Okay, that's the plan. Why should they be concerned about education? Well, let's examine that. What makes up their pension? It's investments in companies. Well, who's working at those companies? It's the kids that are in school right now and the kids that are about to be born that are going to go attend those schools. How good are those companies going to be if that workforce isn't educated? So how good is the pension going to be? And similarly, the Social Security payments, which come from the current workforce, if you want to have enough money in there to take out. You have to have enough people paying taxes in today in order for those of us aging out to take out. So you're saying it, 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 uh, everybody benefits from a, child, uh, a child's education. Everybody benefits from that. And you think there's a chasm right now. I think so, too, that there's a bunch of people who think at some point, hey, it's not my problem anymore. And you're saying it's essentially it's everybody's it, problem. It, and, and what, I, what I want to try to do is, is, is this. Appeal to the heart of people. The right thing to do is to take care of that young person who is growing up regardless of the circumstances that they're in. They didn't cause the circumstances. They're kids. Let's get them educated because it's the right thing to do so that they have the best chance of a future. And, and also, if you can't get there, if that's too leading heart liberal for you, okay, play to your own selfish interest. You still end up in the same place. You've got to educate. And Do you think the mindset's different now than it was, say, in 1955, uh, 10 years after the war? It seemed like everybody seemed to be on the same page. Hell, they were building good schools. They were building, you know, teachers were valued heavily. Uh, I remember, you know, parents dropping their kids off saying, look, deal with my kid how you will. You, you know, you 
go after him if he needs it. it you, you, know, that's, I, that's I, I, you know, I was sorry you brought that up because um, corporal <laughs> punishment was still open. a thing yeah, says, right. when I was in junior high. And they, too, those yeah. boards were hanging on the wall. Um, yet I am really glad that nobody struck my child or my grandkids. So, yeah, right, right. Uh, so, so there's that. Uh, but uh, yes, I, I think that adults uh, during the time I was going to school, all right, which was not in the 50s. I was not old enough to go at that point. Um, but, but yeah, there was a more of a community spirit. There was, there was uh, and the schools weren't independent either. They were supported by uh, community organizations. Uh, they were supported by law enforcement. They were supported by a more robust church activity. Um, the juvenile justice system at that time also um, was geared to getting the kid back on track. And it was not the adversarial adult type of juvenile justice system that it's devolved into. And we also have burdened the public schools with a lot, a lot, a, a lot of social engineering. We, we burdened them with um, many requirements and nutritional as well. I mean, it, it's, it's now we feed them teach them. I don't have a problem with that, but we do a lot. We, there is there is a lot. And that's all going through that uh, budget. And, and by the way, there's some wonderful things. There's kids that get breakfast, lunch, and dinner, all right? And on the weekend, they get a food pack. Mm-hmm. And in the summer, they can come in and get food pack. I have no problem with that. If their family could come in, as long as it would get to the meet, the, the end that you're talking about, and let, let's get a kid who's who's ready to go out of the gate at 18. That's right. And, there's a, and, and, and so w- when you think about things that we did. Let's look at the technologies of the time. The telephone back then, that was the breakthrough technology. We had a universal access um, uh, regulations in place so that everybody had some phone service. The internet today needs to be the same way. That's the gateway. School, school me on this, and I, 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 it, it's probably a lot less access than I think it is, isn't it? I'm assuming that everybody has it, but I'm sitting here with it. It, it is. I don't have. I'm not asking for numbers, but is it a lot less total coverage for internet access than I'm thinking? Uh, don't know, yeah. um, but I know that there's devices that I have and that I carry that not everybody mm-hmm. could afford. Yeah, I, and, I assume information immediately, and maybe I shouldn't make that assumption for everybody. Or like we see in Wayne. I guess we see that straight away. We don't see kids that have that kind of access to information right away. Yeah, and, yeah. and actually, uh, kind of as a sidebar on this, um, with education, you know, when I was in school, th- there was no such thing as, gosh, put your phone away, right? Yeah. It didn't exist. Your phone was at home, right? right. Yeah, Tethered right. to something. Hopeful that your mom or dad didn't get the call you didn't want them to get. But that's, <laughs> that's, right. that's a different story. That's a different I'm sure you had some of those. So, uh, so um, the, and then it, it morphed to, hey, when you come into class, turn your phone off, all right? And now what I'm understanding that teachers are doing, they're incorporating the device into the lesson. Go look this up. Go find, go find that. Come back and make a PowerPoint presentation. And, and I think that's a really healthy thing. It's, it's riding the horse in the direction it's going, mm-hmm. and it is getting the education done. Um, and I know that I, I was privileged to speak at a 
high school graduation some years ago. And my message to the kids was real simple. Work hard. Because I know anybody that accomplished anything without working hard. The second part was look it up yourself. And so be skeptical. Where did that information come from? Who shaped it? What did they leave out? Um, and, and really dig in. Ask the question. Ask the, asking the question. Right. And, and so right now we're, we're looking at you know, antitrust things around big tech. Mm-hmm. And we have to find the right answer there. We'll find it. Man, eventually. if I had three hours with you on that, we're going to do that in, in, in another uh, episode of this podcast. I would love to hear your take on that. We can't do it now, but. Yeah. And then the third thing was take care of people. Yeah. And um, I, I think we're getting there. So, uh, but your, your original question was uh, relative to where the public schools yeah. and education. And yeah. they're not, the public schools today are not the melting pot that they were in every community. Uh, because today families have more choice, that there are charter, uh, there are the faith-based, there are other uh, private schools um, that are do a fine job of educating. Um, there are communities that have outstanding public schools, and it's uh, interesting that there really aren't other alternatives because there's no demand for them. People are satisfied with what they're getting from the public schools. So I think we need to make all the schools strong. I think they need to be grounded in real world things. I mean, kids still need to know how to write. They need to be able to have reading comprehension. They need to be able to do computation. Um, You know, and again, another thing that's fallen into the public schools, the basics of life. How do you open a checking account? Or they probably won't write checks. Sell your points taken. Yeah, right. You know, how, do, how do you rent an apartment? Um, yeah. How do you make a budget for a household? Um, like, you know, if your lights get turned off, how do you get them back on? Yeah, exactly. So that's that, that's a big one um, in some of these uh, districts. Um, so, so I, yeah, I, I see where you're coming from on on a lot of that. You know, you, your your background is um, uh, in computers. Uh, you, you're a you're not a proponent's the wrong word, but you're an appreciator of the binary world. You know, you, you appreciate things that are either right or they're wrong. But I like your gray areas. So some of the things you, that you uh, speak about are great, and that's you know from a lifetime in business as well. Well, that's the, Brian. That's one thing too that I, I really did want to um, talk about. Sure. Okay, and that um, I'm distressed by this notion of pick a side, and I have witnessed so many people terminating relationships that could be very fruitful because they don't like a person's position on a particular issue or they don't like their party affiliation. Um, it's unfortunate, isn't it? And you're right. That's become binary, right? You're either in or you're out. Right. And <laughs> and so the I, I think that the, the case can be made that party politics has failed. That we are in an election cycle right now. And I'd like to ask people if, does it matter who the Democrat nominee is? And does it matter who wins in November 2020? Now, rest assured, you'll get very emotional uh, answers to both those questions. Okay. But I'd like to pose this question. 
how different are we today or, or how different would we be had the 2016 presidential election turned out the way everybody expected it to? You, th you, you think the, the polarization would still be the same? The hatred on both sides, the year in, year out, I'm against you, I'm for you, would well, still be the same? Well, think about how adept our politicians have become at partisanship. They're really, really good at it. And so the day that our current president was elected, the other party said, we are going to fight this, resist this. There was no handshake across the aisle. There was no olive branch. There was no, let's, okay, let's put the election behind us. Let's work for the people. It was, no, we are going to be very radical about opposition from day one. Saw it on election day and inauguration day. There were riots in the streets in, uh, in, in some cities. I'd never seen that before. That, that was troubling to me. Yeah, there were, there were riots during the... Uh, during the election cycle, right. and there were, um, you know, it's it's despicable. We didn't see that when um, when Eisenhower was in the White House. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, I don't remember Eisenhower in the White House, but that's a, but but no, there there is a, um, th there wasn't a sense that the stewardship of the country is being turned over. And we're all going to work on things, and and before somebody gets angry with it, had the election turned out the other way. There was going to be resistance as well, um, probably not rioting in the streets, but who knows? And right now, this is why I say it really doesn't matter because when these parties are battling each other, who wins, who loses, who's left out? And regrettably, we're left out. Yeah. And so the, what what I think about on this podcast and when I think about what to do with the remaining time I have on earth, I, I like to think of the analogy of a bridge. So imagine a bridge spanning a chasm and you've got a support on, let's say the right bank, and it's a very strong support and it's people are working really hard to build that. And on the left bank, somebody's working really hard, other people are to, they're going to try to build that left bank just as big and as strong as they can. And now that span goes out across the chasm. They both collapse in the middle. Nobody gets across that chasm. There has to be reaching out from the right to the left, from the left to the right, with a big old support in the middle. And yeah, that's where. Yeah, but is is it your thought that there's a stream out there that's not that, that doesn't have a voice right now? I, I'm hearing from you that it's there. There's there's some people like you out there, but it's not on either extreme that you're hearing about that's getting that attention. It, it first of all, it'd make terrible theater, and it'd make, <laughs> it'd make terrible sound bites, and it would make uh, terrible fodder for the national hysteria uh, that the legacy media and the primary cable so-called news networks like to put on every night. So so let me let me kind of run through this then to the end. All right, I'm going to uh, try to be a, I'm going to get my brains beat out on this, but I'm going to try. <laughs> We're going to try to be original. There's plenty of places for extremists to go, okay? And if you've heard it on 10 other places, you're not going to hear it here because if you want to hear the far right, the far left, you all know where you it's go. It's everywhere. It's yeah. everywhere. You yep. can go get that. Yeah. We have solvable problems. And so we're going to try to be solutions oriented. We're not going to give in to dogma. We're not going to give in to partisanship. 
I will call out stupidity, uh, no matter where it comes from. Um, that's an open market on certain places, and the preferred delivery method will be sarcasm. Just because I'm very well practiced at that, um, we will bring in interesting guests. Um, we will step off of hype, and uh, we will find out. We'll find out if there's more that unites us than divides us. Sounds like you're not looking for a winner or a loser. You're looking to move forward. That's a great way to put it. And, you know, if we can find a solution, there's a solution to immigration. There's a solution to guns. There's solutions to health care. And you have to be able to sit down with people. And, and sometimes when I talk about some of these solutions, people will look at me and they'll go, yeah, you know, that's a really good idea. And then, but, and then they'll start criticizing if they're a Democrat, they'll start railing on the Republicans. If they're a Republican, they'll start railing on the Democrats. And can we just stop and say it's an idea and maybe tell the people that we elected who work for us, we don't care about your party affiliation. We don't care if you have a D, an R, an I, a W, a P, and whatever next to your name. Fix the problem. It's They're solvable problems. We can compromise. Not everybody's going to get their own way. But this notion that we're going to go from one extreme to the other and, 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 then, and then be surprised that we have this national anxiety. You know, in this face of this really robust economy, and if you looked at the um, uh, statistics that came out this week about how the income, uh, household incomes are up and wages are up, and it should be happy days are here again. But instead, we have other statistics that show that we've got a lot of social ills. And we need to calm down, back away from the partisan brinksmanship, and let's talk about what ails us and how to solve it. Folks, you've been listening to Richard Helpy, businessman, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. And this is the first edition of the podcast, and we look forward to having a couple more episodes down the road. Rich, thanks a lot for coming, and, and I can't wait to hear your uh uh, your next episodes. This is going to be exciting, and I think you have a lot to talk about. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.